Beloved congregation, so far we have considered the opening section of the famous Sermon on the Mount. And boys and girls, you know that in those opening verses, the Lord Jesus gives us a picture. Not a picture that we can see like a photograph, but a picture of what a child of God, what a Christian looks like. And I'm wondering if some of you, if I were to ask you, if you could tell me what that picture looks like, what that picture looks like of a child of God. Remember, there are seven marks that Jesus gave us, those first seven Beatitudes. And at number seven is the number of perfection. So Jesus gives us a perfect picture by which we can examine ourselves whether we are a child of God, whether we are a citizen of God's kingdom. And then we saw that those who reflect those seven marks, they can count on it that the world will hate them. Why? Because those who reflect those marks, they as it were, represent God in this world. The world perceives something in the true Christian that provokes them to anger. And why? Because the world hates God. The natural man hates God. And by the grace of God, we live our lives according to those seven Beatitudes especially when outwardly we we reflect the character of God by being merciful, by being pure in heart, by being peacemakers. Christ says, the world will hate you for it. They've hated me, and they will hate you. They will persecute you. They will pursue you. They will slander you. They will cast you out from their company. But he says, rejoice. Rejoice, as if to say, if that's the reason why the world hates you, if that's the reason why the world persecutes you, this is your badge of honor. And then we saw last week that Christ then specifically spells out how we are to function in this world. And we heard that he said, you are. As my people, you are the salt of the earth. Your calling is to to inhibit, in your environment, to inhibit the manifestation of wickedness and perversion as as a preservative. But you're also to be the seasoning, the seasoning of your marriage, the seasoning of your family, the seasoning of your workplace. Your presence should have a seasoning effect. And then we saw that we are called also to be the light of the world, to be light bearers. Because we, as the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, we are the only source of light in this fallen, dark world of ours. And Jesus told us, don't hide your light under a bushel where it cannot shine. As we saw last week, he said, your walk, your Christianity, your testimony should be as obvious as a city that's on a hill. And so that gave us again much reason for 
self-examination. To ask ourselves, in this past week, in my marriage, in my family, in the workplace, in school, did I let my light so shine before men that they have seen our good works? Not in the way the Pharisees did to draw attention to it, but, but Jesus is saying, was our Christianity, was our godliness so obvious, so obvious, that men, whether they liked it or not, were compelled to glorify your Father which is in heaven. That brings us to the next major division of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we transition from verse 16 to 17, in which Christ talks about good works. So what are good works? What are good works? Well, of course, works that are good not by human standards. Works that are good by God's standards. And of course, boys and girls, you know that too. How do we know how... Do we know what's good? Well, we just read the law together, did we not? The Ten Commandments is God's standard of that which is good. So good works means that we conduct ourselves, that we live according to God's standard of righteousness, namely His holy law. And the focus of our passage today is very much on the law and the function of the law in a very unique way, as we will see. So let's read together again verses 17 through 20 as we continue our exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. Verses 17 through 20. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yoke or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so what we have here is not merely an evaluation of the law, but it's much broader than that. Because what we have sung together from Psalm 119, as I've said before, when the psalmist refers to the law, also in Psalm 19, it's the entire body of God's revealed truth that he is talking about. So what we have here is Christ's evaluation, ultimately, of the Scriptures. First of all, we will see that those scriptures here, he uses the figure, of a very common figure of speech, the law or the prophets, that 
those scriptures are fulfilled in him. Number one. Number two, those scriptures must be fully honored. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yoth or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And then in verse 19, he unpacks that in very specific language. And then finally, those scriptures proclaim a righteousness that is acceptable to God. Because even though Christ makes a negative statement, the implication is there is a righteousness by which we can enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's not the righteousness of the scribes and of the Pharisees. Because that righteousness is unacceptable. So Christ's evaluation of the scriptures. They are fulfilled in him. They must be fully honored. And they proclaim a righteousness that is acceptable to God. One of the things the Lord Jesus was accused of by the spiritual leaders of his day, by the scribes and Pharisees, that he was setting aside the law of Moses, that he was disregarding the word of God, the scriptures as they had them. And of course, that was an entirely false allegation. Because what Christ set aside was not the Scriptures. What he set aside was not the law of God, but it was the utterly corrupt and perverse distortion of that word by the scribes and Pharisees. And so when Jesus arrived on the scene, the people of Israel dwelt in utter spiritual ignorance. They had been misled, misguided, and mistaught by the scribes and Pharisees who were guilty of distorting the word of God and by distorting the word of God were guilty of making, as Christ would say to them, making the word of God of none effect. They had robbed the word of God of its power. They had robbed the word of God of its message. And worst of all, They had utterly, utterly obscured the essential message of the Old Testament, which is the gospel as we have it expounded in the New Testament. Because that gospel is there. That gospel was fully displayed in Israel's ceremonial worship. That ceremonial law, as we call it, is what Paul talks about when he says, the law is a schoolmaster unto Christ. Paul is saying that law which God gave you, that whole system of of sacrifices, has been your teacher, your divinely appointed teacher to teach you the essential truths of the gospel, that salvation is by faith in God's appointed sacrifice. That's why the Sermon on the Mount was a very significant moment in Christ's public ministry. It was his first major public discourse. And what Christ is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, he is teaching the people the true meaning of the Old Testament Scriptures. As we work our way to chapter 5, we read part of chapter 5. Hopefully you notice that Jesus says, you have been taught... You have been told this and this, but I say unto you, 
Let me tell you the real meaning of God's law. And we will see that also again next week. Because after all, he was the lawgiver. So if there was anyone authorized to explain what the law really meant, it was Christ who was the lawgiver. But what else did Christ have in mind with the Sermon on the Mount? He did not preach the Sermon on the Mount to give a blueprint for the millennium. He did not preach the Sermon on the Mount to teach us lessons in morality. But why did Jesus come into the world? The Son of Man, he himself said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ came to save sinners. And these poor people did not realize that they were sinners. They did not realize that they were transgressors of the law. And so when he unpacks several key commandments later on in this chapter, it not only to give us the real sense of those commandments, but to wake those people up and to awaken them to the fact that they were transgressors of the law. Why is that so necessary? Well, without that awareness, without that realization, they would never understand who he was. They would never understand why he came. They would never understand that they needed a Savior. And that's Christ's burden. That is Christ's burden for his people. That's why in Matthew 11, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Oh, it grieved him to see the people groaning under the burden of the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. That's why this passage that we're considering today is highly significant. Because Christ here sets the tone for that which follows. Think not, he says, that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. That's a very important statement, congregation. Because here, what we have here. Here is Christ, who is the living Word of God. So what does that mean, boys and girls? That Christ is the living Word of God. I want you to understand that. So, in other words, in Christ we can see what we read in our Bible. Christ is the living revelation of who God is. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen my Father. So by means of Christ, God reveals to us who he is. As a matter of fact, God always wants us to think of him in connection with his Son. We must always focus on him. And so here Christ, as the living word of God, is telling us very important things about the written word of God. First of all, what he obviously tells us is that the entire Old Testament, and he uses that summary statement that we find several times throughout the Gospels, the law and the prophets, 
even though he used the word or here, but that, that, that statement together represents the entire body of Old Testament truth. Because the law to which he refers here, of course, refers to the opening books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, those first five books of Moses. And we have to realize that for much of the Old Testament period, those books of Moses, that Pentateuch, was God's revealed truth to Israel. In those five books of Moses, all the doctrines of Scripture are already found. The entire truth of the gospel is already found in those five books of Moses, especially in the book of Leviticus, which is the gospel of the Pentateuch. And so Christ is saying, I am. The reason I have come is not to set aside those Old Testament scriptures, but I have come to fulfill them. I have come as the perfect fulfillment of everything that has been said in the Old Testament scriptures. And so what he is saying ultimately the entire Old Testament, all that is revealed in the Old Testament, all is ultimately about me. It all points to me. And so that means that Christ is the key that unlocks the meaning of the Old Testament Scriptures. And what a premium Christ here puts on the Old Testament. That's important in our day. In a future time, I will, I will preach some messages where I will explore this in far greater depth than I can do today. But we live in a Christianity today that wants to set aside the Old Testament. There are those who claim to be New Testament Christians, as if the Old Testament is no longer significant for the people of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christ said, I did not come to set aside the Old Testament. I have come to fulfill the Old Testament. And that's what Psalm 40 verse 7 refers to, quoted in the book of Hebrews. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. And so, congregation, for us today, to read the Old Testament profitably, we need to ask ourselves, how does this relate to Christ? Parents, that's a, a wonderful exercise for you to do with your children. When you read the Old Testament stories, it's to stop and consider and ask your children, ask yourself, how does this relate to to the Lord Jesus. That's why Jesus said in John 5, he said to the Pharisees, well, search the Scriptures. You think you know your Bible. Go and search the Scriptures. For they are they which testify of me. And so Christ is the key that unlocks the meaning of of the Old Testament, and thus, by extension, also of the New Testament. Because what is the New Testament? The New Testament is the final and concluding chapter of the Old. It is the capstone of Old Testament revelation. It is those final books that 
bring together all the strands of truth that are revealed to us in the Old Testament scriptures. So the New Testament is the apostolic, Christocentric exposition of the Old Testament. The apostles understood it. So as they preached the scriptures, as they went into the world, they went into the world with their Old Testament Bible because they didn't have the New Testament. With their Old Testament Bible, they went into the world and they preached Christ because Christ had told them, these scriptures are all about me. That's why Luke 24, when he meets the men, those men traveling to Emmaus, we read these profound words. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scripture, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so now when to return to the focus of the law, because that's really his special focus, because he was accused of setting aside the law. We need to understand that Christ's entire ministry, Christ's entire ministry revolved around the law. And so when Christ was born, when he took upon himself our human nature, we call that the incarnation. So what happened, boys and girls, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem's manger? Well, what happened is that the lawgiver became the lawkeeper. The lawgiver became the lawkeeper because he took upon himself our human nature. And from that moment on, as he grew up, he lived in perfect obedience to that law. I say the lawgiver because we know, comparing Scripture with Scripture, that it was Christ who appeared at Mount Sinai. It was Christ the eternal Son of God, who gave the law to Israel. So now in the fullness of time, the lawgiver becomes the lawkeeper. We read of this in Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, born as a child, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. And so the lawgiver becomes the lawkeeper. And then, even though he lived a perfect life, he is condemned as a lawbreaker. He is condemned by Pilate as the nation's number one criminal. And he allowed that to happen. He allowed himself to be condemned as a lawbreaker. And to be nailed to the cross as a lawbreaker even though he wasn't. But why did he do that? Well, the lawgiver became a lawkeeper in order to save lawbreakers. That's who we are as sinners. The lawgiver became the lawkeeper and then was punished as a lawbreaker to secure the salvation of lawbreakers such as we are. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He took upon himself the curse of his own law so that we 
could be blessed with everlasting blessings. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And what is the blessed result of that? The blessed result of Christ being the mediator, the substitute of lawbreakers is that lawbreakers can be reconciled with God not only, but that lawbreakers become law keepers again. Because that's how that salvation will manifest itself. And so Christ was not only delivered on the cross to secure the pardon of our sins, but out of that cross flows the renewal of life. So redeemed lawbreakers will become law keepers again. Not to earn God's favor, but as an expression of love and gratitude to that Savior who in my place suffered and died so that I, a lawbreaker, a sinner, could be reconciled with God and redeemed again. So when Christ is saying, I have come to fulfill, he encompasses all of that. That includes the cross. He would not have completed his mission had he not gone to the cross. So what's beautiful about the whole ministry of Christ, we see a perfect life and we see a perfect sacrifice to save sinners He died, he lived a life that you and I can no longer live as sinners. And he died a death that we could have never died. And by that, he secured a perfect and full salvation. So how do we recognize God's redeemed people today? That's again the thrust of the entire Sermon on the Mount. We recognize them by the fact that they are doers of the word. Not just hearers of the word, but they are doers of the word. That brings us to our second point. Because Christ tells us that we are to fully honor those scriptures that he has come to fulfill. Verily I say unto you. Verily is that word amen in Greek. A Hebrew word, amen, Christ says. When you know your Bible somewhat, you will know that whenever Jesus said something important, he would say verily, to draw people's attention as if to say, what I'm about to say is very important. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yoth or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled." What did Jesus mean by that? Yoth and tittle. So in Hebrew, yoth is the smallest letter there is. It's like an apostrophe. It's very tiny, but it's meaningful. And then you also have these tittles, these, these markings that are very important in connection with the Hebrew letters. So what, you know what Jesus is saying? I have come to fulfill that word to the very letter, to its minutest detail, even down to the yoth and to the tittle. 
And so what Christ is affirming here as the living word, as the living word, he is telling us that the written word is the inspired word of God down to its minutest detail, down to the yoth and down to the tittle, all of it. Of course, we're talking about the original language, not the translation, but in its original form. And of course, that means, as we will see in a moment, that Christ is saying, you must take my word as seriously as I took it. I came to fulfill those scriptures, every part of it, every detail, every yoth and every tittle. And so in the Hebrew Bible, if you would take away those tiny letters, those little apostrophes, if you would remove those little markings, you would lose the proper meaning of the text. And so, boys and girls, those of you who are old enough, you should do a little experiment. It's on your laptop, just type a paragraph. Type a paragraph, a short paragraph. And then remove every comma, every period, every colon, every semicolon, every bracket, and then remove all the spaces and see what you have left. And then try to read what you have written. Suddenly, you can no longer really read what you've written. Because all of those little markings, they all played an important role for you to be able to communicate to others exactly what you meant. By taking them all away, it would no longer be intelligible. Christ is saying, my word, the Old Testament scriptures, is the inspired word of God. And by extension, that is true, of course, for the New Testament as well. And he says about that word in its totality, with every yoke and tittle, that word in its totality shall in no wise pass till all be fulfilled. He says, till heaven and earth pass. And thereby simply saying, this cannot and will not ever happen. Because heaven and earth ultimately will never pass. There will be a total renewal of God's creation. But what God has done is forever. And so he was saying, that word that I have come to fulfill, that word will endure forever. And again, that makes sense, because it is God's word. And since God is forever, his word must be forever. God's word is as eternal as he himself is eternal. That's why the Puritans were fond of saying that the law is a transcript of God's mind. It's a reflection of how God thinks. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 22, when he, when he gave that profound statement about the law, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second commandment is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, what's often missed, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. As if to say, the entire body of revealed truth pivots on those two commandments. And that's why that law 
It's forever. That will be the law in glory. God's redeemed people will live in perfect obedience to that law. Because not one yoke or tittle can pass from that law. Psalm 119 verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Isaiah 40 verse 8. The word of our God shall stand forever. And Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And there he is saying, the world as it now is, that world will pass away. But my words shall not pass away. So what is the important point? What's the important application for us? The important application is that we must honor all of Scripture, all of it, as he did. That's it, as he did. So what Christ is teaching us here is that God demands of us 100% commitment to his word, to every yoke and tittle, to all of it. And why is it? That God wants us to honor his written word. Why? Well, then we see the connection again. Because the written word of God, our Bible, this written word of God is ultimately about God's Son, the living word. That's so important, congregation, I will repeat it often. The written word is about the living word. And the only way we can understand the written word is we always remember that foundational principle. That's why when we dishonor the written word, we dishonor the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. That puts sin in a whole different perspective. And so when you read Psalm 119, that beautiful psalm, there you read the testimony of a man who understood that. The testimony of a man who was committed for 100% to honor that word. In every conceivable way, he expressed his love for the word of God. In verse 128, he says, Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Can you relate to that congregation? Before God, is that your commitment? Can you say, I too, because I love my God and I love my Savior, therefore I esteem all his precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. And so here the living word Christ, he forbids us, to tamper with the written word. To tamper with it. We read in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, Whatsoever thing I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish it. Not even one yoke, or not even one tittle. And so the bottom line is, Christ is saying, no part of Scripture may ever be treated as trivial. There are no trivial portions of Scripture. 
Nothing in the Word of God is trivial. That's why when Jesus sends his disciples out into the world, he tells them, you must go and you must baptize the nations and you must teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. You must teach them my entire revealed will. You must teach them the entire word of God. So what is our calling as a Christian, therefore? Our calling is to honor the living word, to honor your Savior by honoring his written word. That's godly living. That's genuine Christianity. That's godliness. We honor the living word. We honor our Savior by honoring his written word. So to be Christ-like means that we should honor God's word as seriously as he did. That's it. Because that's what he did his entire life. He supremely honored the word of God. And that's, of course, the comfort for the Christian. Because our problem is our obedience is so imperfect, so flawed, so inconsistent. We have but a small beginning, the catechism says, a small beginning of that new obedience. And yet, by grace, it becomes our desire By grace, it is our desire to honor that word. That's why we should always be in the word, searching the word prayerfully, desiring the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we may understand the word, so that more and more our life, our walk will be conformed to that word. But the comfort for the Christian is, that Christ did this perfectly in your place. That's why the act of obedience of Christ is so extremely valuable as well. He lived a perfect life in our place. That's why the Christian does not endeavor to earn God's favor, but as an expression of gratitude for God's favor, desires to follow in the footsteps of the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who again prophetically said in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. That's it. And so the question for me, the searching question for me and for you, are we, as parents, as spouses, as employers, as employees, as office bearers, are we, are we honoring God's word in every detail of our lives? Are we honoring God's word in every detail of our lives? That's why the psalmist, the godly psalmist who wrote Psalm 139, he ends the psalm, he said, search me, O God, Search me because I I don't trust myself. Search me and see if there is any wicked way within me. And should that be the case, lead me in the way everlasting. Then he goes on 
in verse 19 to say, Whosoever, therefore, shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So what Christ is addressing here is, again, the false teaching of the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so the Sadducees were the antinomians of Christ's day. Let me explain what that means. So boys and girls, that sounds like a mouthful. Antinomian. It's anti-nomos, two words. Maybe your parents can write it down. Anti-nomos. And the word nomos means law in Greek. So antinomians are those who are opposed to the law. And you have them today who say, we are redeemed by Christ, we are now free to live as we please. We are no longer under any obligation to the law. Christ delivered us from the law. Of course, that's absolutely not true. That's very prevalent today. Many Christians today are antinomians by their very lifestyle. That was true for the Sadducees. On the other hand, you had the Pharisees, who were the legalists of his day, who had multiplied God's commandments with commandments of their own, creating a burden too heavy to be borne. And Christ is ultimately dealing with both of these. So let me use an illustration that hopefully will help for our children. Antinomianism says we, don't, we can ignore the law. We are no longer bound to God's word. We can live as we please, even though we claim to be redeemed. That's the one extreme. Or the legalists, who actually says that the better we behave ourselves, the more we do and the more we don't do, the more God will be pleased with us, as if our works are meritorious, can earn God's favor. So there is a saying, and it's especially true in northwest Iowa where I've lived, that every road has two ditches. Every road has two ditches. Now, when you drive through the country in northwest Iowa, you see that. On either side of the road is a ditch. And if you don't stay on the road, you will end up in one of those ditches. And from time to time, we would see someone in a ditch, especially during the wintertime. It's not a good place to be. And so when you drive the country roads there, you have to pay attention that you stay on the road, that you don't end up in one of those two ditches. And so the gospel highway has two ditches on either side, the ditch of antinomianism and the ditch of legalism. And both are a profound misunderstanding of God's law. And so the gospel highway says, Christ delivered us from the curse of the law. But he did not deliver us from the law. No, he delivered us from the curse of the law, and he reconciled us to God to transform us to what God created us to be, to be law keepers again. So that for the Christian, the law remains important as the standard by which we order our life, our conversation. And then finally, and I will refer to this many more times so I can be brief here. Finally, Christ makes this 
stunning, earth-shaking statement. I can assure you, when the people heard this, they disrattled them to the core. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The people looked up to the scribes and Pharisees. They were the ultimate, the ultimate examples of righteousness, so they thought. Many a Jew only wished he could be like a scribe or Pharisees. So in Jesus' day, they would say, if only two people could go to heaven, it would be a scribe and a Pharisee. That's how highly they esteemed the scribes and Pharisees. And and they, of course, they projected themselves as the ultimate standard of righteousness. That's why when the time of prayer came, as we will see in chapter 6, they would look for a prominent place to draw attention to their righteousness to their godliness. So boys and girls, if you want to understand the Pharisees, review the parable of the publican and the Pharisee in the temple. There Jesus tells us how Pharisees thought. There the Pharisees stood, Lord, I thank thee that I am not like so-and-so, and I do this and I do that. I fast twice a week, even though God only required one fast in the whole year. Twice a week, I pay, and so he was, he, was, he was listing all of his achievements. And he thought for sure that God could not but be so pleased with him. You know the story. It's the man who stood there, who didn't even dare to look up. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man went home justified. And so why does Christ make this Dramatic statement. Because he wanted to shake the people awake. He wanted to shake them to the core. To realize that what the the scribes and Pharisees taught was not the word of God. Was a misrepresentation of God's word. A misrepresentation of the character of God. You see the Pharisees had an outside of the cup religion. So think of a cup, a cup that's dirty. So all they would care about is to clean the outside of the cup. They didn't care about what was in the cup. Jesus said, that's what your your religion is to keep the outside clean. Even so, he says, also outwardly, you appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Luke 11, verses 39 and 40. Now do ye Pharisees, Jesus said, make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. Ye fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? That's why when Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. See, the Pharisees didn't care about that. As long as they look good on the outside. Christ is saying, the righteousness of the Pharisees, what they promote is absolutely worthless in the sight of God. Worthless. He says, if you have nothing better than that, what they have, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. 
the congregation. That's the message of God's word. Because that's why the gospel is so offensive to the natural man. Because the gospel says, sinner, you have no righteousness that is acceptable to God. The gospel says we are sinners, that we come short of God's glory. The gospel says that even our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And Christ is saying, this righteousness is not good enough. This righteousness comes short of what God demands. And if you have nothing better than that, you shall in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. So Christ is saying, that righteousness that they promote, what they have been teaching you, is absolutely and fatally flawed. And why did Christ do this? Because what Christ is doing, and that this is the introduction to what follows, he wants to confront these people with their radical sinnership. That's why he says, if a man but looks on a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery in God's sight. The Pharisees said, as long as the outside looks good, that's all that matters. And Christ, he, he's going to poke a hole in that. He's going to rip away that facade. He says, God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. And so he confronts them with their radical sinnership. Paul was thinking of this, no doubt, when he wrote Romans 10, verses 2 and 3. For I bear them record to his own people, for whom he grieved, he says, that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. And that's what Christ wants to make room for. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. These people needed to understand that they were unacceptable to God, that their religion was unacceptable, their righteousness was unacceptable to God. So they would realize that they would need him to save them from their sins. So that they would hunger and thirst after his righteousness. That's how the Holy Spirit still works. When he saves us. When he saves sinners. He confronts us with our spiritual bankruptcy. He confronts us with the painful reality that I have nothing to show for that I have no righteousness that is acceptable to God. Because that's what the cross does, congregation. The cross is the ultimate testimony to that. Because the cross puts a cross through all my merits. It puts a cross through all my accomplishments. It puts a cross through all my righteousness. And says there is but one righteousness that's acceptable to God. And that's the righteousness secured by Christ by having lived his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice. And so Christ is making room, literally making room for that righteousness that can only be found in him. Romans, 8, Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God 
without the law, apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's the whole point, you see. The Old Testament did not teach that you could be saved by works. The Old Testament did not teach that you could secure God's favor the way the Pharisees were proclaiming it. The Old Testament taught that you need God's righteousness. And that's what the ceremonial law was all about, to teach the people of Israel that they were sinners who needed a bloody sacrifice to be reconciled with God and to be restored into his favor. Oh, my dear congregation, have you learned this experientially? Have you learned experientially that your righteousness is worthless in the eyes of God? Have you learned experientially that even your very best works are not clean in the sight of God? Have you learned to confess with David, I will make mention of thy righteousness and of thy righteousness only. Oh, then that righteousness of Christ becomes so precious and he becomes so desirable. And if we believe in that Christ congregation, if you believe in that Christ, you will be righteous in the sight of God, not with your own righteousness, but God will credit to your bankrupt account the flawless righteousness of his Son, and he will view you in light of that righteousness. Because without it, you will in no case enter to the kingdom of God. And so in conclusion, congregation, do we take the word of God seriously? All of it. Every oath, every tittle. Do we unconditionally surrender to that word in its totality? Are we honoring Christ by honoring his word? That's true Christianity. Honoring Christ by honoring his word. That our prayer would be with the psalmist. Psalm 119. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. For oh, how love I thy law. That is my meditation all the day. Amen. Our gracious God and Father, bless the instruction we have received this morning from the mouth of the living word, from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in such remarkable and striking language taught us such essential truths about thy word. Oh, may we examine our hearts whether we are wholly committed to honor that word in its totality, every oath, every tittle. Forgive us all the ways in which we become short, all the ways in which we are guilty so many times of will worship. Lord, deliver us from it and guide us by thy Holy Spirit. And Lord, may we be a people of the word. May we be diligent 
in our searching of that word, our study of it, our reading of it. And teach us that foundational truth that we shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven unless we have the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it all in his name. Amen.